from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. We're kicking off our 2022 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from right here in West Lafayette, Indiana at Purdue University. And from corn yield to the aquaculture field, here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Uncovering the agronomy and science behind a yield robbing disease in corn. We go from having nice green corn, you may have 10, you know, 5% infection, you don't know it's there, two weeks later the corn is brown. How to play offense against tar spot. What you need to know ahead of USDA's next big crop production report on Monday. Plus, is there enough fuel to see farmland values race even higher? Could hemp become a tasty food you eat or drink? We had some work conducted with oat milk compared to hemp milk, compared to other different alternative proteins that can contribute to a beverage. A lab digging into the science behind some unique foods. And in John's world, AI at the fair. The 2022 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from Purdue University is brought to you exclusively by Bex. From farmers' first pass in the field to the final one at harvest, it's a game plan rooted in faith and belief. Bex Hybrids is with you every turn because both on and off the field, we're all farmers at heart. See why at BexHybrids.com. Well, this year we're excited to partner with Bex to bring you our U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow. We'll be making seven stops this fall to different universities and land-grant colleges across the U.S. to show you what's on the horizon for agriculture, as well as what's already at play in farmers' fields today. We'll dig into that research from right here at Purdue University later on the show. But first, looking at the news, the world markets reacting to the news that Russia may be possibly backing out of the grain deal. Russian President Vladimir Putin claiming Ukraine is cheating on the U.N. brokered agreement. Putin told an economic forum that almost all the grain exported from Ukraine is going to European Union countries, saying only two of the 87 ships carrying 60,000 tons of product went to poor nations and further warned of a looming food crisis. He says the agreement is just an act of deception by the international community. However, market analysts tell us that's not the case. We do have reports that it has been going to the Middle East and African countries. So it'll be interesting to see what his uh, goal is with talking about it, but it definitely led to some fears that he might cancel the agreement and the incentive right now um, altogether. Russia reportedly has a big wheat crop this year and prices have declined. So analysts believe that Putin is making a play to reduce export competition for that crop. Beetle says the export deal is set to expire in late October or early November. And so this is an early indication that Putin will likely renegotiate the terms or not agree to a deal at all. Well, an update on the rail situation that we've been covering. Two more rail unions have reached a tentative agreement. The agreement is with the railroads, the latest, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers and the American Train Dispatchers Association. Together, they represent approximately 6,000 freight rail employees. This brings the total to five of 12 unions that have announced tentative agreements. Officials in the grain industry are hopeful that will continue to cause a domino effect that will avert a strike on September 16th. If not, U.S. farmers will face a real disaster, even if the strike were to only last a few days. If a strike happens, it would be, uh, you know, frankly, couldn't, couldn't come at a worse time uh, here uh, right on the cusp of uh, harvest activity. 
and he says that would have a negative impact on cash prices for farmers. Yeah, if, if freight is not available or if it is available on a very limited basis and the price of it goes higher as a result, uh, that would have a detrimental effect on the basis. Cedardal says even without a strike, rail service has been horrendous. It improved slightly after the April Surface Transportation Board hearing, but now he says it's the worst it has been. Well, USDA releasing its latest crop condition ratings and ahead of the big report on Monday, USDA showed no change to the corn condition. Corn is still 54% rated good to excellent. That's the same as last week. And it's the same story with soybeans with 57% rated good to excellent. No change from the week prior. But check out spring wheat harvest. It's really picking up pace. Now 71% complete, up more than 20 percentage points from last week. Still running behind the five-year average of 83%. And winter wheat planting just getting underway with 3% of the crop in the ground. That's on par with the five-year average. Well, as California continues to grapple with drought this week, those in California were dealing with record-breaking heat. Sacramento hit 116 degrees earlier this week, the hottest day on record for the city. But that's not all. Record highs were also hit parts of northern California, Utah, and even Montana, with some cities shattering previous daily highs by more than 10 degrees. As a result, some of the nation's largest utility companies notified their customers to prepare for potential rotating power outages. All right, that's it for the news. Well, this area of Indiana definitely saw some dry conditions this summer, but then caught some rains. So as we're preparing for harvest, what systems are Matt Yurisovic keeping his eye on? We'll take a look at that with weather next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator, it's not just any closing wheel. Reach your yield potential. Get 10% off while supplies last. Welcome back to our U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from right here at Purdue. And I always said that Mike Hoffman bled black and gold, and that is true. Now retired, but Mike, it's so good to see you. And you work for Purdue now? I do work part-time for the College of Science. We uh, deliver science equipment to uh, about 40 different high schools around the state, and uh, I love doing it. Well, Matt's keeping his eye on quite a few things. I'll let you do the honor this weekend. Here's Matt Urasovic with the weather, and of course, his team beat my team the first week of the year. Matt? Yeah, sorry about that, Mike, but we are one to know. Taking a look here at our root zone as we head through this week. We saw a little bit of improvement here in parts of the south across Texas. A lot more rain fell there. Saw improvements in the drought monitor there and still some damp conditions across the Mississippi River Valley, even up into parts of the Great Lakes. And even though things are still dry across the east, more rainfall has fallen there even after the data came in for this root zone and that helped out some of this drought monitor here. As you can see, we've got some improvements there, southern parts of New England, and expecting more as we head into next week. And still starting to lose some of those drought conditions or improve them uh, in parts of Texas, in parts of Arizona and New Mexico, and continuing to see some improvement here across the northern plains as well. And we'll continue to keep an eye on that. But this has been most improvement over the past two months. Parts of Texas, only a few isolated areas still dealing with extreme 
and exceptional drought conditions. A lot of improvements here. Things are going to stay unsettled through the northern uh, tier as we head through this week, and that's because of this right here. Cutoff low moving through the Great Lakes going to keep things very unsettled. Places like Purdue, where Mike was at, we've got some of those showers and even a few thunderstorms with some cooler temperatures and lower humidity moving on in, but then things get warmer again as we head through the end of the week before another little trough moves into the west and that will bring some more precipitation in to the northwest as we head through the next weekend and then into the following week and that will keep things unsettled but still looking at a few scattered showers out there in the west as we head through Monday and this is the storm system here kind of meshing with some more tropical moisture from the south bringing in some cooler air up here to the uh, parts of the upper plains and uh, parts of the Great Lakes but then keeping that humid air out ahead of it, showers and thunderstorms along that. And that storm system not going too far by Wednesday, still hanging over the Ohio Valley with showers and storms all the way down from Florida up to Maine and still a few scattered showers and storms back in the west and parts of the southwest as well. Staying hot and dry in the middle of the country. And it's on Friday when we start to see more of that unsettled weather move across parts of the upper Midwest and northern plains. A few scattered showers in parts of the southwest and more tropical moisture along with a stalled out front. Now that that system's moved on through, we keep around some of those showers possible through the end of the week. But here's a look at the temperatures this week below normal through parts of the Great Lakes down into the Mississippi Valley. Above normal out in the west though and across the east out ahead of that cold front and the precipitation will be much of the same uh, above normal there where we're going to be seeing a lot of that below normal behind that front and then more showers and storms possible back in the west and we'll have more coming up on that drought monitor next week but for now Tyne back to you thanks Matt and Purdue's going to get you back next year <laughs> thanks Mike it was so good to see you all right we need to take a quick break and then we're keeping our eye on a big report coming out from USDA on Monday, what are Purdue's ag economists watching for? We'll sit down with them right after the break. Welcome back to Purdue University for our College Roadshow this weekend. Excited for our ag economists that are on the panel today. A lot of things to talk about, but Jim, let's first talk about the most pressing topic uh, for a lot of folks watching. That's USDA's next big report that we're going to see out on Monday. As you look at kind of how USDA could change yields and, and forecasts for supply and demand, what do you think is the most uh, pressing topic that we need to be watching out of Monday's report? Well, this report is going to be huge with respect to yield. Um, I think a lot of people are expecting the corn yield number to come down. The question is going to be how much. Um, there are some estimates out there that are, that are I'd say, shockingly low. Um, but most people, I think that the trade's probably expecting a, a reduction in, in supply that's probably going to amount to about 250 to maybe 275 billion bushels, which will tighten things up quite a bit. Um, and so it, it'll be interesting to see if that materializes. On the soybean side, there's probably more of a question mark there because of the impact of some late season rains and what's going to happen yeah. with respect to yield. Most people, I think, are looking for the yield on soybeans to stay about the same or maybe come down just a little. So probably not a big change on the supply-demand balance sheet for soybeans, but maybe a bigger change on the corn side. And that uh, you know, just further tightens a situation that's already pretty tight coming in. Yeah, Todd, if we see that situation tighten a bit and we do see commodity prices react, whether it's baked into the market now or not, is, is another debate. But if we do see commodity prices react, we do see those remain uh, you know, elevated. 
What impact could we have on farmland prices as we move kind of through these these key months this fall and into this winter? Yeah, so, uh, you know, farmland prices are really formed by the expectations of what we expect to earn it um, and over sort of a longer period. So farmland prices usually don't respond to sort of short flashes in commodity markets, but it would give us some sign of like, are the good times here to stay for a while? Uh, at which point that kind of gets baked in. Uh, but this is also coming against sort of a rising interest rate environment, which is putting downward pressure on the land values. And so in order to kind of maintain the prices we've seen over the last year or so, we need to see uh, returns at least stay stable, but preferably grow a bit. Well, you know, you mentioned that, but also when you look at inflation and the impact that that's having around, I mean, you look specifically at the CPI. Mm -hmm. Is it a true reflection of the inflation that consumers are seeing with the products that they are purchasing today? So one of the things that uh, it's happening is, well, the CPI is going to be reanalyzed. Um, we, see, we think that inflation is a little bit higher, actually, than what we see on the stores. So that's something to, to think about. Um, we know that retailers and food manufacturers tend to are squishing margins, although they're very profitable. Um, they're squishing margins, so we, we see that probably there's going to be a chance that we're going to see price increases uh, for foods in grocery stores. And that's going to impact how consumers are going are to react to what are they going to eat and how are they going to spend their money on things that they, they find necessary or not. Is it just the raw price of commodities or what else has been fueling this inflation that consumers are seeing? Well, fuel prices. Uh, we know that gas prices have increased, although they have been stabilized in the past uh, few months or few weeks rather. Um, expectations, uh, the food supply, how is, uh, how are the fuel uh, changing how food is transported and how is that going to influence the cost in the grocery store? Jim, are we seeing any demand destruction either here domestically or abroad when you look at these elevated commodity prices, not only on the, on the grain side, but also the meats? I, I think the big concern with respect to both of those is going to be what happens to income levels in some of the importing countries. And then you've got an exacerbating factor with respect to exchange rates. But I think the headline story on exchange rates doesn't necessarily match up with what's going on in agriculture because the headline story tends to focus on, for example, the U.S. dollar versus uh, the British pound or the, um, the euro. And those are not the major export markets for us. So it's really more important to think about what's happening with respect to the dollar versus the Mexican peso, uh, the Japanese yen, uh, and the Chinese currency. And that's a little different story. And you also have to look at how we're stacking up relative to our competitors. So it becomes a pretty complicated situation. But in some of those importing countries, we are probably starting to see some demand destruction because those are some pretty high prices at the, at the import gate level. Yeah. All right, well, when you look at some of these income levels specifically for farmers, we are seeing cash rents rise rapidly. So, Todd, when we come back, I want to get your take on where we could see those cash rents go. But first, we need to take a quick break here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, just this summer, Purdue's College of Engineering announced the formation of the Institute of Hard AI, which the university says positions Purdue as a national leader in artificial intelligence at the interface of the virtual and physical world. But artificial intelligence is already driving equipment today in the agriculture world. And as John Phipps tells us, it's nearly impossible to grasp it until you see what it produces firsthand. Fair season is winding down with its images of earnest young men and women leading impeccably groomed animals into a show ring. 
at least that's what pops to mind for many of us in agriculture. But other stuff goes on at fairs, and this year at the Colorado State Fair, there was a bombshell event seemingly unconnected to farming. And you're looking at it. This is the first place entry in the digital art division. The title is Space Opera Theater, only in French, which I would hopelessly mangle. I know it looks like a slick science fiction book cover, but the uproar is over how it came to be. Using an artificial intelligence program called Mid-Journey, artist Jason Allen of Pueblo, Colorado created this image without making a brushstroke or a pencil line. He just entered some carefully chosen text into the program and then took an image to be printed on canvas. While the picture may not be your preferred type of art, such AI programs can tackle styles and subjects from impressionism to portraiture. In fact, they are doing so with rapidly increasing skill, originality, and acclaim. Using a process called diffusion, the program somehow matches the text with millions of online images into a mashup that has the art world flummoxed and artists terrified. One reason is while we could kind of imagine AI taking over sophisticated factory automation and lately even complex management tasks like hiring, we have considered the mystical skills of creative work like art or music beyond the reach of computers. This picture is early proof that assumption may not be completely valid. While AI works essentially by trial and error on a massive scale, it can learn to pick out those very few results that people connect with, just like it sorts resumes with remarkable success to find the right people to hire. AI is also muscling into creative fields like writing. You have probably already read a computer-generated newspaper story, especially on the sports or financial pages. AI is even being used to write humor, a very troubling development. As the programs keep improving, which they do so on their own, the output is slipping unnoticed into more and more creative fields, such as fashion design, for example. Now, I'm going to talk more about how AI might surprise us in ag, but we probably won't believe it until, like Colorado fairgoers, we see it with our own eyes on our own farms. Thanks, John. Well, we're sticking to right here in Indiana for this week's Tractor Tales. Machine Repeat has it next. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we are again in the great state of Indiana, and we're gonna check out a 1967 International Harvester. This tractor was my last restore two years ago and I just wanted to do something a little different. And I had parts laying around. The tires are old combine tires, and uh, I wanted to put them on. The weights, though, all those weights that are on there, they're plastic. They weigh 2.75 pounds each. Now, if they were steel, they'd weigh 75 pounds apiece. These here in the front are, hunt these are steel, and they're 100 pounders. This tractor, I bought it on an auction. When we got it home, we found out it, well, we knew it had a turbo on it, but it was odd. It wasn't the kind of turbo that would normally be found on these. And after doing some research, 
we discovered that it had a King Brothers turbo. It's a screaming thing. It, it really runs. It's a beast. <laughs> Purdue University continues to find cutting edge research to bring solutions to farmers, but a big piece of that success is the vibrant data and research that still happens across the state through Purdue Extension. And up next, we'll show you how that research is paying off for corn farmers in the form of understanding a major disease that's been lurking in cornfields for several years now. We will go from the football field to the cornfield next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. The 2022 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from Purdue University is brought to you exclusively by Bex. From farmers' first pass in the field to the final one at harvest, it's a game plan rooted in faith and belief. Bex Hybrids is with you every turn because both on and off the field, we're all farmers at heart. See why at BexHybrids.com. Welcome back. Well, tar spot has grown as a major yield damaging disease in corn. It was actually first spotted in Maryland for the first time this summer. But here in Indiana, some growers have battled tar spot since 2018. Ongoing research here at Purdue is not only digging into the disease, but treatments that will help growers fight off tar spot for years to come. A bird's eye view of Indiana's corn crop this year shows lush green fields. Luckily, because of the dry conditions we had at that end of June or middle of July, um, slowed the diseases down that we worried about. Darcy Talinko says it's a welcome change for Indiana farmers this year after multiple years of battling tar spot. For last year, the problem was the disease started about July 3rd, July 4th. Talinko digs into multiple corn diseases, and while tar spot is just starting to pop up across Indiana, what we do is we check, is it, is it embedded in that tissue? Can I scratch it off? It's the yield hit that some growers saw in 2021, continuing to haunt their decisions. When we first started, we gave an estimate about 20 to 60 bushels per acre is what we saw. I bet there were fields last year that had 50% yield losses. Talinko says in years where the disease pops up earlier, multiple cycles occur after that during the growing season. When it starts early, it's going to shut down those leaves, lead to rapid blighting. And if we're not to that black layer time frame, then we're going to lose some of that weight in that, that ear. She says tar spot starts in the leaf, and once it consumes the leaf material, the plant shuts down. That's because all the leaves that are supposed to feed the corn ear are dead. But the problem is with this disease compared to the others is it changes rapidly. We go from having nice green corn, you may have 10, you know, 5% infection, you don't know it's there. Two weeks later, the corn is brown. But even then, she says fighting the disease with fungicide can only happen if the timing of that application is right. If you've had a consistent problem with it, maybe you need to be ready to put a fungicide out. Our work has shown we can go with that standard timing that we go with with, at, uh, with great leaf spot at the VT, the early tassel to silking. That timing can provide some good yield protection. But depending on the timing of when the disease appears, farmers may need to shift their fungicide applications earlier or later. Last year was one of the years where we could have gone earlier with a late vegetative application and maybe come back, back in with a second application and protected yield. This year, because it came in so late, we may have been able to wait and hold on to our applications and maybe only needed one application to get us to the end of the season. 
Even if you find growing tar spot pressure today, Telenco says research shows it's too late to address it. If we're beyond R3, so the early milk stages of the corn, we're not recommending a fungicide application. This map shows tar spot has been mainly concentrated in the upper Midwest, with pockets even on the East Coast and Southern Georgia. Proving tar spot isn't just a problem Indiana farmers are facing. This disease is going to show you, though, it's going to find those areas that were skipped or we didn't get enough coverage down in. This is the one disease that's going to test all the application equipment. Now, she says there's actually an app called Tar Spotter, where extension folks from various states work to supply that app with data. And then the app uses weather and other factors to help you see if you are in an area that could be prime for tar spot during the growing season in the coming year. All right, when we come back, we're talking to our ag economists once again, focused on more than just the U.S., but what are they keeping their eye on worldwide? We'll get into that next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend from Purdue University. All right, Todd, I teased it with the last roundtable, but when you look at cash rents, we have seen a, a rapid rise in cash rents across the country, but specifically looking at Indiana, record cash rents in places. Do you think that will continue? It's really tricky to tell, right? So the, the challenge with cash rent, and I always argue it's one of the hardest numbers to, to sort of measure, right? Even though we used to work at the USDA in the area. It, and the, the challenge is that it's based on a bargaining process between the landlord and tenant. And so we do have high commodity prices. Looks like we'll have pretty good production. Farmers will have some liquidity, but at the same time, they're seeing a lot of their input costs rise. And so farmers will be hesitant to sort of accept higher cash rental rates. Uh, but I know the landlords also, uh, you know, they're in an inflationary environment. They're gonna wanna see them up. So I, I think we'll probably hold, hold relatively stable, not a big movement one way or the other, uh, but I mean, we'll kind of see. It's how that negotiating process breaks out. Speaking of input prices, all right, I mean, it's something that we have seen now for over a year. We've seen these escalating input prices when it comes uh, to some of, uh, you know, the, these key inputs that farmers are, are buying. But even now they're telling me booking for fall, they're sick to their stomach when they're getting some of the, these pricing when it comes to uh, fall fertilizer applications. So what have we learned in this whole process of, of, of COVID and the lingering impacts and this rise of input prices? What have we learned in all of this? So I think, uh, I think there were some lessons in the 2008 recession that we actually didn't learn. We know that we are very re reliant on importing fertilizers and inputs, and I think that has impacted agriculture. Uh, farmers, the non-land cost for, uh, for farmers, meaning fertilizers and other inputs, have increased tremendously. And that's gonna really impact how farmers are gonna be profitable and what are the margins that they're gonna perceive uh, but one of the things that I don't think we'll, we've learned that to be more self-reliant in terms of how do we feed and what are the inputs that our farmers need. Uh, we haven't been very, uh, I don't think we have learned the lessons from COVID in 2008 about how is the, uh, the food supply chain being a structure and who is taking those margins from the farm gate, the farms put their crops outside to the consumers who's gonna end who is actually uh, taking that weight when supply chain, uh, supply chain disrupts. Jim, you know, talking to some farmers in some areas where the crops are good, you know, farm income levels this year could still be pretty decent despite those input prices. But when you look at the ag economy barometer that you help author every month, how do sentiments and even perception, how does that compare to the reality? 
Well, people are very concerned, and that's being reflected in the sentiment measures. The sentiment is down dramatically compared to where it was roughly a year and a half ago. Um, and I think that's largely a reflection of the uncertainty that's out there. I think people in agriculture are acclimated to volatility in output prices, but what they're not acclimated to is the tremendous volatility we've been seeing in input prices and, and also the, the, the levels of those input prices. And I think that's created um, a tremendous amount of unease out there. So despite the fact that 2022 for most people is going to be a pretty good year, not as good as 21, but still a pretty good year, um, they're very very uneasy about where they're headed and where their farming operation is headed. It's reflected in the sentiment. Um, so that's, that's can, can continue to be a concern. Yeah, and Todd, what, you know, when you look at some of the, these farm income forecasts, where could we see actually this year maybe be better than, than, than 2021? And what areas then are you also concerned about? So I always look at the USDA forecast, uh, and I've, I've studied that one uh, quite a bit. And they're actually, they just released the most recent farm income forecast, updated their February forecast. It's up about 30%, so they're much more optimistic. But historically, they tend to kind of over-project in the summer, and they'll kind of ratchet it back down in the fall. So I don't think they're quite as rosy and optimistic as, as it appears. I don't think they will be as rosy and optimistic as it appears now. When you look at some of those concerns, both inside and outside of agriculture, you know, when you think about China, Ariana, I mean, you look at some of the issues from the zero uh, COVID, kind of that lockdown policy and the lingering effects. What are some things that maybe you want to know more out of China? And what are some of those trends that you're watching that could stick longer term? So one of the things, one of the issues or the things that uh, has been talked a lot is what are the grain stocks that China may have? And how are those going to be uh, released? Uh, what is the transparency that China may have to release those grain stocks or oil? Uh, oil, we know that prices of oil was the highest increase, 60% prices. Uh, since February of this year due to the Russian and Ukraine conflicts. So when those issues of Russia and Ukraine, uh, the conflict hasn't fixed, uh, we need to rely on stocks that are, you know, have been stored in other countries such as China. All right, well, thank you all for being here. We really appreciate the insight. All right, we need to take a quick break and then we'll dive into more research that's happening right here at Purdue. <laughs> Well, some of you may be busy canning out of your garden right now, but have you ever thought about what it would take to sell that secret recipe by mass producing it? Well, the science behind the food and the products takes months to happen. And thanks to a newly created institute right here at Purdue, students are helping take those ideas and turning them into reality. Step inside this lab at Purdue University and you'll find a food science pilot plant opening the door for new products by uncovering the science behind the textures and tastes. Any kind of pilot trials will help to accomplish the established parameters for production. So we do lots of trials using this space and lots of different kinds of processing. This pilot plant has been a staple of Purdue Food Science for years, but the Food Entrepreneurship and Manufacturing Institute, or FIMI, is new. We already have a lot of entrepreneur interest and small business interest, but we're really after expanding the grower segment to give them the opportunities to launch their value-added products. Launched this year, students are a key part of the process. These students are really the boots on the ground for a lot of projects. 
the students get to interact with the companies and really advance the project forward. With more than 20 students working with FEMI today, they take a basic recipe from a client and do everything from generating a base recipe to even doing sensory tests. They are measuring color or something like water activity or pH. We have a range of specifications, both quality and safety-wise, that will ensure that as the product is scaled, they will have a consistent, safe product for their potential customers. This lab will upscale food products derived from common commodities like corn and soybeans to the more rare commodities like chickpeas, pistachios, or even hemp. From the hemp uh, grower's perspective, if you are expelling the oil, we are using oil for certain use for hemp oil, the leftover is the hemp cake. How can we use that hemp cake, extract the valuable proteins and carbohydrates, and then use it in the extrusion system to make a plant-based meat analogs which have that characteristics of uh, hemp cake. Today, the growing appetite is for creating more of the plant-based protein products. Texture comes as primary because whenever we are working with high moisture extrusion space, texture is the one thing that we are really uh, tied into. Flavor, we know that we can create certain flavor profiles, but texture becomes one of the important aspects. As investment in plant-based products continues to roll in, that work was put to the test this summer with these students. We had some work conducted with oat milk and compared to hemp milk, compared to other different alternative proteins that can contribute to a beverage. Uh, these students were really understanding what was already on the market uh, versus what would be a, a viable product moving forward for some of these growers that need an outlet for their the produce that they generate. For example, salsa will follow a different FDA regulation category than, let's say, if it's a soup-based food product or just even canned chickpeas, which, which we are doing right now. So providing those kind of guidance will, will help them see the overall scope on where their product is headed before they can see it on a retail space. From a sensory lab to other hands-on training, these Purdue Food Science students are getting a taste for the obstacles and opportunities of taking a food from ideation to creation. Who knows, some of those projects that the students were tasting could be coming to a store near you someday. Well, we need to take a quick break and then we'll check back in with John Phipps. That happens next. Well, the research going on right here at Purdue University doesn't just help larger farmers. It also caters to smaller producers, just like the research in the food science department. But what about input costs and the impact that those are having on smaller producers? That's customer support this week. The future of small producers is a perennial concern. I am a small producer of the fairly common corn and soybeans and hay. Like many producers my size, we depend on our off-farm income to support our farming habits as input prices are going up, such as fertilizer and chemicals. Not to mention, it is hard, if not impossible, to acquire some inputs. It is becoming harder and harder to financially justify continuing to produce crops. Do you think this will cause many small producers, such as myself, to enter into programs such as the CRP or cease our farming activities until the input costs come down and become more reasonable again. 
and that's from Lee Samuelson in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Thanks for writing, Lee. I should note this email is part of the bunch that came in last spring, and some things have kind of worked their way out a little. Inputs were expensive, and the selection was often limited, but I think there was roughly enough for the 22 crop. Fertilizer was undoubtedly postponed or applied sparingly, especially nitrogen. That said, small farmers are a tough bunch to discourage. If their acreage is mostly or completely owned, one popular alternative to facing a loss is to let someone else take it. In other words, simply rent the ground out, preferably for cash. The demand for rental ground from tenants has not slacked off, judging from the rents I have seen and heard and that the government has published. Putting the ground in CRP is a viable option depending on the payment rate in your area compared to available rents. Keep in mind that it is a long-term commitment, but rental contracts can be as short as one year if both parties agree. My sense is that while smaller farmers can take a time out and return to farming when they think economic conditions are better, most find collecting rent payments and avoiding further losses is not a bad alternative. Many often work part-time for their tenant for added income just to keep their hand in. Ownership of the land is, of course, the key to having any options at all, which is why we all, what we always pay what seems to be way too much to possess it. Thanks, John. Well, Indiana may be known for corn and soybeans, but could Indiana soon be the shrimp capital of the world? We'll take you behind the doors of some research that may be doing just that. That's next. While Indiana ranks fifth in U.S. corn production, the state is home to more than just corn, soybeans, and wheat. In fact, just 25 miles from here is RDM, a shrimp farm that's been raising shrimp indoors for 12 years. Only the third privately owned aquaculture company of its kind, research here at Purdue is also making a big splash. Step into this lab at Purdue University. We are able to produce two times of food in one area compared to the traditional aquaculture or the hydroponics. And you'll witness a future of food in the making. Now basically out there the aquaponics mainly in the fresh water but we want to increase the choice or diversify the choice for aquaponics so that we started to do some saltwater aquaponics. Working in aquaponics for four and a half years, Yuting Chu is diving into the world of growing plants and seafood at the same time. So I haven't changed the water for a year and it, it is possible to keep, keep continuing to use the water. A sustainable approach to growing plants and shrimp as resources become more limited. The current food production is not enough to provide the food we needed in the future. And considering 70% of fresh water on Earth today goes toward agriculture use, including for aquaculture, she's testing aquaculture with salt water instead of fresh water. 97% of water on Earth is seawater. So using salt water into the food production is inevitable. So that's why uh, we have to start uh, the research to kind of 
evaluate the possibility of using salt water in food production system. Recirculating the same water is more sustainable, but the issue is the high nitrate concentration levels. While not toxic to animals, she says the high levels will impact aquatic animals. For hydroponics, they use um, the nutrient solution, which is expensive, especially nitrogen and the phosphate. But in aquaculture's waste water, we have a lot of those things. So combine these two, we can help um, the farmers in aquaculture and the hydroponic to find a solution for their, for their operation. As the shrimp generates nitrogen waste, that feeds the plants. As this research reveals the guidelines farmers can follow in the future. Transfer from their traditional aquaculture hydroponic into aquaponics to kind of make the, the operation more sustainable and also increase the food production for the future population. Feeding a growing population with fewer natural resources than what's available today. A large feat, but one that's taking root right here at Purdue. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much to Bex for partnering with us and teaming up for the College Roadshow this year. We're off to the University of Nebraska next week. And we hope you tune in as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.